0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's true that some things change as we get older.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagdorn. Two stories today, the fight of Buckshot Roberts and the manhunt. From Emerson Huff's, the story of the outlaw. And now, our story. Next to the fight of Wild Bill with the McCandless Gang, the fight of Buckshot Roberts at Blazer's Mill on the Mescalero Indian Reservation is perhaps the most remarkable combat of one man against odds ever known in the West. The latter affair is little known, but deserves its record. Buckshot Roberts was one of those men who appeared on the frontier and gave little history of his own past. He came west from Texas, but it is thought that he was born farther east than the Lone Star State. He was long in the United States Army, where he reached the rank of sergeant before his discharge, after which he lingered on the frontier, as did very many soldiers of that day. He was at one time a member of the famous Texas Rangers and had reputation as an Indian fighter. "'He had been badly shot by the Comanches. "'Again, he was on the other side, against the Rangers, "'and one stood off twenty-five of them, "'although nearly killed in this encounter. "'From these wounds he was so badly crippled in his right arm "'that he could not lift a rifle to his shoulder. "'He was usually known as Buckshot Roberts "'because of the nature of his wounds. "'Roberts took up a little ranch in the beautiful Riodoso Valley "'of central New Mexico, "'one of the most charming spots in the world, "'and all he asked was to be left alone.' for he seemed able to get along, and not afraid of work. When the Lincoln County War broke out, he was recognized as a friend of Major Murphy, one of the local faction leaders, but when the fighting men curtly told him it was about time for him to choose his side, he as curtly replied that he intended to take neither side, that he'd seen fighting enough in his time, and would fight no man's battle for him. This, for the time and place, was treason, and punishable with death. Roberts' friends told him that Billy the Kid and Dick Brewer intended to kill him and advised him to leave the country. It is said that Roberts had closed out his affairs and was preparing to leave the country when he heard that the gang was looking for him and that he then gave them the opportunity to find him. Others say that he went up to Blazer's Mill to meet there a friend of his by the name of Kitts, who he heard had been shot and badly wounded. There is other rumor that he went up to Blazer's Mill to have a personal encounter with Major Godfrey. "'with whom there had been some altercation. "'There's a further absurd story "'that he went for the purpose of killing Billy the Kid "'and getting the reward which was offered for him. "'These latter things are unlikely. "'The probable truth is that he, being a brave man, "'though fully determined to leave the country, "'simply found it written in his creed "'to go up to Blazer's Mill "'to see a supposedly wounded friend, "'and also to see what there was in the threats "'which he had heard. "'There are living three eyewitnesses "'of what happened at that time.' Frank and George Coe, ranchers on the Ruidoso today, and Johnny Patton, cook on Carrizo Ranch. Patton was an ex-soldier of H Troop, 3rd Cavalry, and was mustered out at Fort Stanton in 1869. At the time of the Roberts fight, he was running the sawmill for Dr. Blazer. Frank Coe says that he himself was attempting to act as peacemaker and that he tried to get Roberts to give up his arms and not make any fight. Patton says that he himself, at the peril of his life, had warned Roberts that Dick Brewer, the Kid, and his gang intended to kill him. It is certain that when Roberts came riding up on a mule, still wet from the fording of the Tularosa River, he met there Dick Brewer, Billy the Kid, George Co., Frank Coe, Charlie Boudry, Doc Middleton, One Scroggins, and Dirty Steve, Stephen Stevens, with others, to the number of 13 in all. These men were still claiming to be a posse, and were under Dick Brewer, Special Constable. The Brewer party withdrew to the rear of the house. Frank Co parleyed with Roberts at one side. Kate Godfrey, daughter of Major Godfroy, protested at what she knew was the purpose of Brewer and his gang. Dick Brewer said to his men, Don't do anything to him now. Coax him up the road away. Roberts declined to give up his weapons to Frank Coe. He stood near the door, outside the house. Then, as it is told by Johnny Patton, who saw it all, there suddenly came round upon him from behind the house the gang of the kid, all gunfighters, each opening fire as he came. The gritty little man gave back not a step toward the open door. Crippled by his own wounds that he could not raise his rifle to his shoulder, he worked the lever from his hip. Here were a dozen men, the best fighting men of all that wild country, shooting at him at a distance of not a dozen feet, yet he shot Jack Middleton through the lungs, though failing to kill him. He shot a finger off the hand of George Coe, who then left the fight. Roberts then half-stepped forward and pushed his gun against the stomach of Billy the Kid. For some reason, the piece failed to fire, and the Kid was saved by the narrowest escape he ever had in his life. Charlie Bowdre now appeared around the corner of the house, and Roberts fired at him next. His bullet struck Bowdre in the belt and cut the belt off from him. Almost at the same time, Bowdre fired at him and shot him through the body. But he didn't drop. He staggered back against the wall, and so he stood there, crippled of old and now wounded to death, but so fierce a human tiger that his very look struck dismay into this gang of professional fighters. They actually withdrew around the house and left him there. Each claimed the credit for having shot the victim. No, said Charlie Bowdrey. I shot him myself. I dusted him on both sides. I saw the dust fly out on both sides of his coat where my bullet went clean through him. They argued, but they didn't go around the house again. Roberts now staggered back into the house. He threw down his own Winchester and picked up a heavy sharps rifle which belonged to Dr. Apple and which he found there in Dr. Blazer's room. Brewer told Dr. Blazer to bring Roberts out, but, like a man, Blazer refused. Roberts pulled a mattress off the bed to the floor and threw himself down upon it near an open window in the front of the house. The gang had scattered surrounding the house. Dick Brewer had taken refuge behind a 30-inch saw log near the mill, just 140 steps from the window near which this fierce little fighting man was lying, wounded to death. Brewer raised his head just above the top of the saw log, so that he could see what Roberts was doing. His eyes were barely visible above the top of the log, yet at that distance the heavy bullet from Roberts' buffalo gun struck him in the eye and blew off the top of his head. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Billy the Kid was now leader of the posse. His first act was to call his men together and ride away from the spot, his whole outfit whipped by a single man. There was a corpse behind them and wounded men with them. Thirty six hours later there was another corpse at Blazer's Mill. The doctor, brought over from Fort Stanton, could do nothing for Roberts, and he died in agony. Johnny Patton, Sawyer and Rough Carpenter, made one big coffin, and in this the two, Brewer and Roberts were buried side by side. I couldn't make a very good coffin, says Padden, so I built it in the shape of a big V, with no end piece at the foot. We just put them both in together. And there they lie today, grim grave company, according to the report of this eyewitness, who would seem to be in a position indicating accuracy. Emil Blazer, a son of Dr. Blazer, who lives on the site of this fierce little battle, says that the two men were buried separately, but side by side, Brewer to the right of Robert's, The little graveyard holds a few other graves, none with headboards or records, and grass now grows above them all. The building where Robert stood at bay is now gone, and another adobe is erected a little farther back from the raceway that once fed the old mountain sawmill, but which is now not used as of yore. The old flume still exists where the water ran over into the wheel, and the site of the old mill, which is now also torn down, is easily traceable. When the author visited the spot in the fall of 1905, all these points were verified and the distances measured. It was a long shot that Roberts made, and downhill. The vitality of the man who made it, his courage, and his tenacity alike, of life and of purpose against such odds, make Roberts a man remembered with admiration, even today, in that once bloody region. And now, The Manhunt, by Emerson Huff. The deeds of the western sheriff have for the most part gone unchronicled, or have luridly been set forth in fiction as incidents of blood, interesting only because of their bloodiness. The frontier officer himself, usually not a man to boast of his own acts, has quietly stepped into the background of the past, and has been replaced by others who more loudly proclaim their prominence in the advancement of a civilization. Yet the typical frontier sheriff, the good man who went after bad men, it made it safe for men to live and own property, and to establish homes, and to build up a society and a country and a government, is a historical character of great interest. Among very many good ones, we shall perhaps best get at the type of all, by giving the story of one, and we shall also learn something of the dangerous business of man-hunting in a region filled with men who must be hunted down. Patrick Floyd Garrett, better known as Pat Garrett, was a southerner by birth. He was born in Chambers County, Alabama, June 5, 1850. In 1856, his parents moved to Claiborne Parish, Louisiana, where his father was a large landowner, and of course at that time, in place, a slave owner, and among the bitter opponents of the new regime which followed the Civil War. When young Garrett's father died, the large estates dwindled under bad management, and when within a short time the mother followed her husband to the grave, the family resources, affected by the war, became involved although the two Garrett plantations embraced nearly 3,000 acres of rich Louisiana soil. On January 25, 1869, Pat Garrett, a tall and slender youth of 18, set out to seek his fortunes in the Wild West with no resources, but such as lay in his brains and body. He went to Lancaster in Dallas County, Texas. A big ranch owner in southern Texas wanted men, and Pat Garrett packed up and went home with him. The world was new to him, however, and he went off with the northbound cows, like many other youngsters of the time. His herd was made up at Eagle Lake, and he only accompanied the drive as far north as Denison. There he began to get uneasy, hearing of the delights of the still wilder life of the buffalo hunters on the great plains which lay to the west, in the panhandle of Texas. For three winters, 1875 to 1877, he was in and out between the buffalo range and the settlements, by this time well wedded to frontier life. In the fall of 1877, he went west once more, and this time kept on going. With two hardy companions, he pushed on entirely across the wild and unknown panhandle country, leaving the wagons near what was known as the Yellow Houses, and never returning to them. His blankets, personal belongings, etc., he never saw again. He and his friends had their heavy sharps rifles, plenty of powder and lead, and their reloading tools, and they had nothing else. Their beds they made of their saddle blankets— "'and their food they killed from the wild herds. "'For their love of adventure, "'they rode on across an unknown country "'until finally they arrived at the little Mexican settlement "'of Fort Sumner on the Pecos River "'in the month of February, 1878. "'Pat and his friends were hungry, "'but all the cash they could find "'was just one dollar and a half between them. "'They gave it to Pat and sent him over to the store "'to see about eating. "'He asked the price of meals, "'and they told him fifty cents per meal.' They would permit them to eat but once. He concluded to buy a dollar and a half's worth of flour and bacon, which would last for two or three meals. He joined his friends, and they went into camp on the river bank, where they cooked and ate, perfectly happy and quite careless about the future. As they finished their breakfast, they saw up the river the dust of a cattle herd, and noted that a party were working a herd, cutting out cattle for some purpose or other. Go up there and get a job, said Pat to one of the boys. The latter did go up, but came back reporting that the boss didn't want any help. "'Well, he's got to have help,' said Pat. So saying, he arose and started upstream himself. Garrett was at that time, as has been said, a very great height, six feet four and a half inches, and very slender. Unable to get trousers long enough for his legs, he had pieced down his best pair with about three feet of buffalo leggings with the hair out. Gaunt, dusty, and unshaven, he looked hard, and when he approached the herd owner and asked for work, THE OTHER WAS AS MUCH ALARMED AS PLEASED. HE DECLINED AGAIN, BUT PAT fairly TOLD HIM HE HAD COME TO GO TO WORK AND WAS SORRY, BUT IT COULDN'T BE HELPED. SOMETHING IN THAT QUIET VOICE OF GARRETT SEEMED TO ARREST THE ATTENTION OF THE COWMAN. WHAT CAN YOU DO, LENGTHY? HE ASKED. "Ride ANYTHING WITH HAIR AND ROPE BETTER THAN ANY MAN YOU'VE GOT HERE, ANSWERED GARRETT, CASTING A CRITICAL GLANCE AT THE OTHER MAN. THE COWMAN HESITATED A MOMENT AND THEN SAID, GET IN. PAT GOT IN he stayed in. Two years later, he was still at Fort Sumner and married. Garrett moved down from Fort Sumner soon after his marriage, and settled a mile east of what is now the flourishing city of Roswell, at a spring on the bank of the Hondo, and in the middle of what was then the Virgin Plains. Here he picked up land, until he had in all more than 1,250 acres. If he owned it now, he'd be worth a half a million dollars. He was not, however, to live the steady life of the frontier farmer his friend, Captain J.C. Lee of Roswell, came to him and asked if he would run as sheriff of Lincoln County. Garrett consented and was elected. He was warned not to take this office, and word was sent to him by the bands of hard riding outlaws of that region that if he attempted to serve any processes on them, he would be killed. He paid no attention to that, and as he was still an unknown quantity in the country, which was new and thinly settled, he seemed sure to be killed." He won the absolute confidence of the governor, who told him to go ahead, not to stand on technicalities, but to break up the gang that had been rendering life and property unsafe for years and making the territory a mockery of civilization. If the truth were known, it might perhaps be found that sometimes Garrett arrested a bad man and got his warrant for it later, when he went to the settlements. He found a straight six-shooter the best type of warrant, and in effect, he took the matter of establishing a government in southwestern New Mexico in his own hands and did it in his own way. He was the whole machinery of the law. Sometimes he boarded his prisoners out of his own pocket. He himself was the state. His word was good, even to the worst cutthroat that he ever captured. Often he had in his care prisoners whom, under the law, he could not legally have held, had they been demanded of him. But he held them in spite of any demand, and the worst prisoner on that border knew that he was safe in Pat Garrett's hands, no matter what happened, and that if Pat said he would take him through to any given point... Pat would take him through. After he'd finished his first season in work as sheriff and as United States Marshal, Garrett ranched it for a time. In 1884, his reputation as a criminal taker, being now a wide one, he organized and took charge of a company of Texas Rangers in Wheeler County, Texas, and made Atacosa and thereabouts headquarters for a year and a half. So great became his fame now as a man-taker that he was employed to manage the affairs of a cattle detective agency it being now so far along in civilization that men were beginning to be careful about their cows. He was offered $10,000 to break up a certain band of raiders working in Upper Texas, and he did it, but he found that he was really being paid to kill one or two men and not to capture them, and, being unwilling to act as the agent of any man's revenge, he quit this work and went into the employment of the Bee Ranch in the White Mountains. Then he moved down to Roswell again in the spring of 1887 and there he organized the Pecos Valley Irrigation Company. He was the first man to suspect the presence of artesian water in this country, where the great spring rivers push up from the ground. And through his efforts, wells were bored, which revolutionized all that valley. He ran for sheriff of Chavez County and was defeated. Angry at his first reverse in politics, he pulled up at Roswell and sacrificed his land for what he could get for it. Today it's covered with crops and fruits and worth $60 to $100 an acre today being 1910. Garrett now went back to Texas and settled near Uvalde, where he engaged once more in an irrigation enterprise. He was here five years, ranching and losing money. W.T. Thornton, the governor of New Mexico, sent for him and asked if he would take the office of Sheriff of Doña Ana County to fill the unexpired term of Numa Raymond. He was elected to serve two subsequent terms as Sheriff of Doña Ana County, and no frontier officer has a better record for bravery. In the month of December 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt, who had heard of Garrett, met him and liked him, and without any ado or consultation, appointed him Collector of Customs at El Paso, Texas. Here, for the next four years, Garrett made a popular collector, and an honest and fearless one. The main reputation gained by Garrett was through his killing of the desperado Billy the Kid. It is proper to set down here the chronicle of that undertaking, because that will best serve to show the manner in which the frontier sheriff gets a bad man. When the kid and his gang killed the agency clerk, Bernstein, on the Mescalero Reservation, they committed a murder on United States government ground and an offense against the United States law. A United States warrant was placed in the hands of Pat Garrett, then Deputy United States Marshal and Sheriff-elect, and he took up the trail, locating the men near Fort Sumner at the Ranch of One Brazil, about nine miles east of the settlement. With the kid were Charlie Baudry, Tom O'Foliard, Tom Pickett, and Dave Rudabaugh, fellows of Light Kidney. Rudabaugh had just broken jail at Las Vegas and had killed his jailer. Not a man of the band had ever hesitated at murder. They were now eager to kill Garrett and kept watch as best they could on all his movements. One day Garrett and some of his improvised posse were riding eastward of the town when they jumped Tom O'Foliard, who was mounted on a horse that proved too good for them in a chase of several miles. "'Garrett at last was left alone, following O'Folliard, and fired at him twice. "'The latter admitted that he fired twenty times at Garrett with his Winchester, "'but it was hard to do good shooting from the saddle at two or three hundred yards range, "'so neither man was hit. "'O'Folliard did not learn his lesson. "'A few nights later, in company with Tom Pickett, he rode into town. "'Warned of his approach, Garrett, with another man, was waiting, "'hidden in the shadow of a building. "'As O'Folliard rode up, he was ordered to throw up his hands.' But he went for his gun instead, and on the instant, Garrett shot him through the body. "'You never heard a man scream the way he did,' said Garrett. He dropped his gun when he was hit, but we didn't know that, and as we ran up to catch his horse, we ordered him again to throw up his hands. He said he couldn't, and that he'd been killed. We helped him down then, and took him in the house. He died about forty-five minutes later. He said it was all his own fault, and that he didn't blame anybody. "'I'd have killed Tom Pickett right there, too,' Concluded Garrett, but one of my men shot right past my face and blinded me for the moment, so Pickett got away. The remainder of the kid's gang were now located in the stone house above mentioned, and their whereabouts reported by the ranchman whose house they had just vacated. The manhut therefore proceeded methodically, and Garrett and his men, of whom he had only two or three upon whom he relied as thoroughly game, surrounded the house just before dawn. Garrett, with Jim East and Tom Emery, crept up to the head of the ravine, which made up to the ridge on which the fortress of the outlaws stood. The early morning is always the best time for a surprise of this sort. It was Charlie Bowdre who first came out in the morning. As he stepped out of the door, his career as a bad man ended. Three bullets passed through his body. He stepped back into the house, but only lived about twenty minutes. The kid said to him, "'Charlie, you're killed. Take your gun and go out and kill that long-legged son of a bitch before you die.' He pulled Bowdrey's pistol around in front of him and pushed him out of the door. Bowdrey staggered feebly toward the spot where the sheriff was lying. I wish, I wish, he began, and motioned toward the house, but he could not tell what it was that he wished. He died on Garrett's blankets, which were laid down on the snow. Previous to this, Garrett had killed one horse at the door beam where it was tied, and with a remarkable shot had cut the other free, shooting off the rope that held it these two shots he thought about the best he ever made, and this is saying much, for he was a phenomenal shot with rifle or revolver. There were two horses inside, but the dead horse blocked the door. Pickett now told the gang to surrender. "'That fellow will kill every man that shows outside that door,' said he. "'That's all about it. He's killed O'Foliard, and he's killed Charlie, and he'll kill us. Let's surrender and take a chance of getting out again.' They listened to this, for the shooting they had seen had pretty well broken their hearts." Garrett now sent over to the ranch house for food for his men, and the cooking was too much for the hungry outlaws, who'd had nothing to eat. They put up a dirty white rag on a gun barrel and offered to give up. One by one, they came out and were disarmed. That night was spent at the Brazil ranch. The prisoners under guard and the body of Charlie Beaudry rolled in its blankets outside in the wagon. The next morning, Bodry was buried in a little cemetery next to Tom O'Folliard. The kid did not know that he was to make the next in the row. These men surrendered on condition that they should all be taken through to Santa Fe, and Garrett, at the risk of his life, took them through Las Vegas, where Rudabaugh was wanted. Half the town surrounded the train in the depot yards. Garrett told the kid that if the mob rushed in the door of the car, he would toss back a six-shooter to him and ask him to help fight. "'All right, Pat,' said the kid cheerfully. "'You and I can whip the whole gang of them. "'And after we've done it, I'll go back to my seat, and you can put the irons on again. "'You've kept your word.'" There was little doubt that he would have done this, but as a chance there was no need, since at the last moment Deputy Malloy of Las Vegas jumped on the engine and pulled the train out of the yard. Billy the Kid was tried and condemned to be executed. He had been promised pardon by Governor Lew Wallace, but the pardon did not come. A few days before the day set for his execution, the Kid, as elsewhere described, killed the two deputies who were guarding him and got back once more to his old stomping grounds around Fort Sumner. "'I knew now that I would have to kill the kid,' said Garrett to the writer, speaking reminiscently of the bloody scenes as we lately visited that country together. "'We both knew that it must be one or the other of us if we ever met. "'I followed him up here to Sumner, as you know, with two deputies, "'John Poe and Tip McKinney, "'and I killed him in a room up there at the edge of the old Cottonwood Avenue. "'He spoke of events now long gone by. "'It had been only with difficulty that we located the site of the building "'where the kid's gang had been taken prisoners.' THE STRUCTURE ITSELF HAD BEEN TORN DOWN AND REMOVED. AS TO THE OLD MILITARY POST, ONCE A FAMOUS ONE, IT OFFERED NOW NOTHING BETTER THAN A SCENE OF DESOLATION. THERE WAS NO LONGER A SINGLE HUMAN INHABITANT THERE. THE OLD AVENUE OF COTTONWOODS, ONCE FOUR MILES LONG, WAS NOW RAGGED AND UNWATERED, AND THE GREAT PARADE GROUND HAD GONE BACK TO SAND AND SAGEBRUSH. WE WERE obliged TO SEARCH FOR SOME TIME BEFORE WE COULD FIND THE SITE OF THE OLD MAXWELL HOUSE, IN WHICH WAS ENDED A LONG AND DANGEROUS MANHUNT OF THE FRONTIER. "'Garrett finally located the place, "'now only a rough quadrangle of crumbled earthen walls. "'This is the place,' said he, "'pointing to one corner of the grass-grown oblong. "'Pete Maxwell's bed was right in the corner of the room, "'and I was sitting in the dark and talking to Pete, who was in bed. "'The kid passed Poe and McKinney right over there, "'on what was then the gallery, "'and came to the door right here. "'We paused for a time and looked with a certain gravity "'at this wind-swept, desolate spot.' "'around which lay the wide, unwinking desert. "'About us were the ruins of what had been a notable settlement in its day, "'but which had now passed with the old frontier. "'I got worded the kid up here in much the way I had once before,' "'resumed Garrett at length. "'And I followed him, resolved to get him or have him get me. "'We rode over into the edge of the town and learned that the kid was there, "'but of course we did not know which house he was in. "'Poe went in to inquire around. "'as he was not known there like myself. "'He did not know the kid when he saw him, "'nor did the kid know him. "'It was a glorious, moonlit night. "'I can remember it perfectly well. "'Poe and McKinney and I all met a little way out "'from the edge of the place. "'We decided that the kid was not far away. "'We went down to the houses, "'and I put Poe and McKinney outside of Pete Maxwell's house, "'and I went inside. "'Right here was where the door was. "'We did not know it at that time, but just about then the kid was lying with his boots off in the house of an old Mexican just across there, not very far away from Maxwell's door. He told the Mexican when he came in to cook something for him to eat. Maxwell had killed a beef not long before, and there was a quarter hanging up under the porch out in front. After a while, the kid got up, got a butcher knife from the old Mexican, and concluded to go over and cut himself off a piece of meat from the quarter at Maxwell's house. That's how the story arose that he came into the house with his boots in his hand to keep an appointment with a Mexican girl. The usual story is that I was down close to the wall behind Maxwell's bed. This was not the case, for the bed was close against the wall. Pete Maxwell was lying in bed, right here in this corner, as I said. I was sitting in a chair and leaning over toward him as I talked in a low tone. My right side was toward him, and my revolver was on that side. I didn't know that the kid was so close at hand, or indeed, know for sure that he was there in the settlement at all. Maxwell did not want to talk very much. He knew the kid was there, and knew his own danger. I was talking to him in Spanish, in a low tone of voice, as I say, when the kid came over here, just as I have told you. He saw Poe and McKinney sitting right out there in the moonlight, but he didn't suspect anything. "'Quiénes! Who is it?' he asked, as he passed them. I heard him speak, and saw him coming back into the room. "'facing toward Poe and McKinney. "'He couldn't see me as it was dark in the room, "'but he came up to the bed where Maxwell was lying "'and where I was sitting. "'He seemed to think something might not be quite right. "'He had in his hand his revolver, "'a self-cocking forty-one. "'He couldn't see my face, "'and he had not heard my voice, "'or he would have known me. "'The kid stepped up to the bedside "'and laid his left hand on the bed "'and bent over Maxwell. "'Then he saw me sitting there in the half-darkness, "'but he didn't recognize me as I was sitting down.' My height would have betrayed me, had I been standing. "'Pete! "'Ginness!' He asked in a low tone of voice, and he half-motioned toward me with his six-shooter. That was when I looked across into eternity. It wasn't far to go. That was exactly how the thing was. I gave neither Maxwell nor the kid time for anything farther. There flashed over my mind at once one thought, and it was that I had to shoot and shoot at once, and that my shot must go to the mark the first time.' I knew the kid would kill me in a flash if I didn't kill him. Just as he spoke and motioned toward me, I dropped over to the left and rather down, going after my gun with my right hand as I did so. As I fired, the kid dropped back. I caught him just about the heart. His pistol already pointed toward me, went off as he fell, but he fired high. As I sprang up, I fired once more, but I didn't hit him and didn't need to, for he was dead. I don't know that he ever knew who it was that killed him. "'He couldn't see me in the darkness. "'He may have seen me stoop over and pull. "'If he had had the least suspicion who it was, "'he would have shot as soon as he saw me. "'When he came to the bed, I knew who he was. "'The rest happened as I've told you. "'There's no other story about the killing of Billy the Kid, "'which is the truth. "'It is also untrue that his body was ever removed from Port Sumner. "'It lies there today, and I'll show you where we buried him. "'I laid him out myself in this house here, and I ought to know.' Twenty-five years of time had done their work in all that country, as we learned when we entered the little barbed wire enclosure of the cemetery where the kid and his fellows were buried. There are no headstones in this cemetery, and no sacristan holds its records. Again, Garrett had to search in the salt grass and greasewood. Here is the place, said he at length. We buried them all in a row. The first grave is the kids, and next to him is Bowdry and then old Foliard here was the sole remaining record of the manhunt's end. In this desolate resting place, in a windswept and forgotten graveyard, rests all the remaining fame of certain bad men who in their time were bandit kings who ruled by terror over half a western territory. Even the headboard which once stood at the kid's grave, and which was once riddled with bullets by cowards who wouldn't have dared to shoot that close to him had he been alive, was gone. It was not likely that the graves will be visited again by anyone who knows their locality. Garrett looked at them in silence for a time, then, turning, went to the buckboard for a drink at the canteen. "'Well,' said he quietly, "'here's to the boys, anyway. If there's any other life, I hope they'll make better use of it than they did of the one I put them out of.'" Thanks for joining us for 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Episodes come out here once every two weeks on Sunday night at 6 p.m., Please do tell a friend if you have any friends who are friends of the Old West. And also, please do leave us a review, Apple listeners. We're fairly new, and we need new reviews. So please do send one if you have the time. We would appreciate it, and it helps new listeners find us. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories from the Old West.